So we've been loitering in the school of worship for a, four, for a few weeks now. This is session three for those of you who are counting in the school of worship. There'll be one more session next Sunday-ish. And so far we've said these things. When we think about worship and our need to make sure that we worship, this, this basic thing that Christians must do, there are varieties of ways, categories perhaps of worship, uh, but we know that scripture calls us to praise the Lord for who he is, for what he has done, for what he promises to do. That was what we talked about the very first week, that we have a, a responsibility and obligation to praise him and to worship here. But we also have the logical, intelligent response in worship is to fear the Lord. I mean, we recognize who he is. And when we consider all that he is, and we understand that everything we know about him is only a little bit of who he is, that he's so much bigger than we even can conceive, then it makes sense to have an appropriate level of awe for the majesty who sits on heaven's throne. And to remember, to keep in mind, as we, as we think about the awesomeness of this God that we have, this one whom we fear and respect, that he is present with us. And so it's not like he's out there and we fear him. It's like he's standing next to us. And so his presence corrects and informs all of our living, right? And so what I've been talking about started last Sunday, I want to continue today, is this admonition in scripture that comes up again and again and again. So it's not like just like a one-hit wonder kind of a thing. This is a, a theme through scripture and it specifically is this. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Pursue a connection with the Lord. Attempt to dwell in his presence consciously, continually. If we head back into the book of Chronicles, we'll find a, a passage in 1 Chronicles 16 where David has brought the ark back and he needs a place to put it. And if you know the history of the ark being lost to the Philistines and coming back, it's a rocky kind of rough kind of a thing. It's, it's a confusing story. You can read about it in those like 10 to, 10 to 15 area of First Chronicles. But David finally erects a tent because he's not been given permission to build a temple and puts the ark there. And when he does that, he gives a very specific instructions to the priests in, in terms of what they're supposed to do. But before he gives those instructions, it's important to know the setting of all of that. Uh, David doesn't come up with the idea himself that there is a God and God should be worshiped. David has this evolving relationship with God that has led him to the place of setting up this tent, right? By the time he gets there, um, God has been active in David's life. By the time David is king, God has acted many times in David's life. And David is confident that God is for him. I mean, read the story of how we get to this point. This chapter begins after Goliath is long dead. The Philistines have been defeated. The ark has been retrieved. Buildings have been built for the king in Jerusalem. David has a history 
with the God of his forefathers. God is present, and yet the command of David to these priests and to his people is, seek the Lord. Do you understand what I'm saying? David's saying to all of us, seek the Lord, even though David knows God's already here. That tells you something. It's not seek the Lord because this is a game of hide and seek and we can't find him, right? He is present everywhere, but still his instruction is seek the Lord. This is 1 Chronicles 16. The day David first appointed Asaph and his associates to give praise to the Lord in this manner. So the tent's been erected, the ark's coming in. This is the instructions to the worship band and to the priests. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. That's take joy in his name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. He's telling the nation. He's telling everyone, seek the Lord. This is beyond just acknowledging that God is everywhere present. This is saying you exercise the work, do your due diligence continually and in all places, seek the Lord. You should know that just because we're seeking him, that doesn't place God at our beck and call. He isn't our servant. We are his servants. Have you ever seen a well-trained child who walks up to their parent who's in a conversation with another adult, and this child has been trained not to interrupt adults when they're speaking. And so the child walks up and places his hand on his mother's hand, which is the signal that I need your attention for a minute, but also that I understand I'm not going to interrupt because there's something else going on. There's a there's an evident patience in that child, right? That he understands that he's still having a conversation. I'm seeking your intention. And this act is a deliberate act of seeking, okay? We're the servants of God. God has invited us into his throne room. And there probably are times when we have to place our hand out there and say to God, I'm seeking. But the time for the answer to our prayers hasn't arrived yet. And so we may have to patiently wait to actually perceive his voice in our ear. But what's the promise of scripture? Everyone who diligently seeks him finds him, right? Everyone who diligently seeks him finds him. And so we don't have to be nervous that this is a game of hide and seek and we may or may not find Jesus or we may or may not find God. Our responsibility is to seek the Lord. You say, but well, how do you do that? You just put your hand out there or, or how do you seek the Lord? And I think that the story of King Asa 
is instructive to us in this matter. So King Asa's story, you can read one part of it in 2 Chronicles 15. And I'm going to read just an excerpt of his story so you can see what happens in Asa's life. This is 2 Chronicles 15, starting in verse 1. The Spirit of God came on Azariah, son of Oded. He went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God, without a priest to teach, and without the law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, and he was found by them. This is verse 8. When Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Azariah, son of Oded, the prophet, he took courage. He removed the detestable idols from the whole land of Judah and Benjamin and from the towns he had captured in the hills of Ephraim. He repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the portico of the Lord's temple. Then he assembled all Judah and Benjamin and the people from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who had settled among them, for large numbers had come over to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord God was with him. They assembled at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year of Asa's reign. At that time, they sacrificed to the Lord 700 head of cattle and 7,000 sheep and goats from the plunder that they had brought back. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, with all their heart. They entered into a covenant to do what? To seek the Lord. David had established worship by erecting a tent and putting the ark in it many years previously. And since David's reign, Solomon reigned 40 years, Rehoboam reigned 17 years, Abijah reigned three years, he's Asa's father, and now we have Asa. Things have spiraled out of control in that period of time. There's chaos in Israel. They have all but forgotten the God of their forefathers. This happens over a span of 60 years. That's all it is. It's 60 years from the passion of David, the psalmist, from the wisdom of Solomon, which wanes by the end of his reign, and then another 20 years, and it's chaos. And I'm wondering... When the prophet speaks to Asa, what does he do? How does he he seek the Lord in order to bring about the reformation of Israel in his day? And, And I think his model applies to us. I think that we can look and see what Asa does and we can say to ourselves, huh, there's insight for us. I don't I don't know where we are in that trajectory of 60 years. There are some days when I feel like we're at the waning days of Solomon's reign. There are other days when I feel like we're all the way at the end of the 60 years and we need reform desperately. Maybe it depends on who I'm standing with and what the object of the conversation is. As a culture, 
I feel like we're in year 65, maybe. I don't know. We're, we're in tough days. But what does Asa do? What does he do in response to the prophecy of the Lord, which instructs him to seek the Lord and to invite all of Israel to do the same? The first thing he does is he removes all the distractions. Did you notice that in the passage there? In Asa's days, there were numerous distractions. There were shrines, idols, other things in the land that captivated the attention of the people and distracted them from the living God. There were rival gods, essentially. And these special places of worship were put at places distant from the temple, so it would just be convenient for folks to worship there. So you didn't have to go all the way to Jerusalem. It's frightening to me how much convenience plays a role in this. This this demise of the true worship of God in Israel is linked largely to convenience. How How can we make it easier for us to respond and worship the living God? That's not all um, lost today, is it? I mean, we really care a great deal about convenience. If the service time isn't exactly convenient or the service isn't, well, maybe we have, you know, it's sort of hard to get out. And, you know, it's, convenience is a distraction to us and our pursuit of this. Some of the, some of the idols that were placed were actually put in place by the queen mother. Okay, so, so when Asa removes these distractions, there's some risk involved, okay? He actually has to depose the queen mother in order to do this because she is an evil influence on the family. And the Asherah pole that she's erected has got to be cut down and the distractions have got to be removed if there's any chance of us actually seeking the Lord. It's true for all of us. The distractions must be put aside. I don't know what the distractions are in your life. I don't know what things may have captured your attention or keep you fixated or or you're all drawn into this thing or whatever. But if there's a distraction like that in your life, whether it's, I don't know, whatever it is, You have got to cut it away. You have got to remove the distractions. Some of the distractions you know are things that are bad for you, right? You know that you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't do that. Those distractions should be cut away. Some of those distractions are just simple, just simply rivals for your attention to God. It's not that they in themselves are wrong. It's just you have just been so consumed with this thing I just got to get that patio built on the back of my house. And so for those six months, that's all you do. And it has your full attention. And once it's built, then you got to get the right furniture for it and get the right grill for it. And then and make sure you every year put the right stain on it. And, and this becomes a distraction. And somehow, if we're ever going to seek the Lord, we have to remove the distractions whether the distraction is a good thing or a negative thing. There are some things that stretch all the way past distractions to the level of sin, right? You can't continue to sin against God and seek him at the same time. Part of removing distractions 
is finding a place of repentance and saying, God, I have been wrong. I have acted wrongly. I've not done the things I was supposed to do. I've done the things I wasn't supposed to do. Lord, forgive me and restore me and renew me. I mean, after all, how can you really say you want to do God's will part-time, right? You either are going to give yourself completely to God and do God's will full-time, or you're not doing his will at all. You can't do God's will, you know, 23 and a half hours a day and think that's going to be enough because the very fact that you're not doing it all the time means you're not really doing it at all. And so removing the distractions is about affirming that you will do his will. The second thing that Asa does, removes the distractions and then turns toward God. You notice the second thing he does after he removes everything, he goes to the temple and he rebuilds, repairs the altar of the Lord at the entry to Solomon's temple. And so he, he orients himself there at the temple in the presence of God. I think for us it means we have got to place ourselves in proximity to God, emotionally, geographically, attention-wise. I think David is remembering, I mean, Asa is remembering what David did. He brought the ark from afar to be with him, since it was the symbol of God's presence, and made a place for it in Jerusalem in his home, essentially. And this, this bringing myself to the place where God is is sort of a symbol for us of, of being present with God. We remove the distractions, we confess the sin, and then we get close to God by moving ourselves close to him. I think there's lots of ways you can do that. I mean, there's lots of ways we get close to God. We get close to God through prayer, through the reading of scripture, when we gather with a small group to talk about what the Lord is doing in our lives, when we come to worship services, when we, we come to the prayer at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings or at seven o'clock at Wednesday nights or at six o'clock on the first Sunday night of each month, these are times when we specifically intend to draw close to God. They aren't the only times. Daily as we bring ourselves into proximity with God, we seek him through the discipline of a devotional life. We get close to God. The third thing we have to do after we figure out how we're going to bring ourselves close to God is to state our intentions. It's not, a, not enough just to find out where God is and get over there and stand next to him, right? We have to decide what's our purpose? Why are we doing this? What, what are we intending to do? And we need to state our intention to seek him, to hear from him, to ask his spirit to conform us by his grace to his desire. Through prayer or through praise, 
what Asa did after all this was he assembled all the people. He got them all together for worship, told them what they were supposed to do, and told the priests how to instruct the people. Told the folks, it's your job. You've got to seek the Lord. You've got to do this, and we must do this as a nation. When David, Asa's forefather, raised the tent to house the ark, he commanded the priests to praise God in this way. You've said these words already today. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always. That's David's intention statement, which becomes Asa's intention statement, which becomes our intention statement. Lord, we want to seek your face. We want to be in living, dynamic, vital connection with you. We want to hear your voice. We want the distractions removed from our lives. We want to bring ourselves close to you, knowing that we come close by your invitation. And once close to him, we say, Lord, we desire to hear from you. We desire to know you. We desire for you to reveal yourself to us. We're going to listen to what you have to say. Those instructions weren't just for Israel. Those instructions were for us. In fact, you get a taste of this in Acts 15. In Acts 15, we're at the Jerusalem Council. Paul and Barnabas have done mission to the Gentiles. They're coming back to Jerusalem sort of to tell the other disciples what's going on. And, and James the elder is there and they, and they speak. And, and this is what you read in Acts 15, 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago, long ago. You see, all humanity is invited to seek the Lord, not just his church. All humanity is invited to seek the Lord. Inside the church, Outside the church, people everywhere seeking the Lord. So how do you seek the Lord? You give your full attention to God. You remove the distractions. You turn towards him. Place yourself in proximity, emotionally, geographically, attention-wise. You state your intentions through prayer or praise. Perhaps you have to make sacrifices 
promises to seek the Lord. And once you've done those things, shut up and listen. Okay? Once you've sought him, once you've removed the distractions, once you've brought yourself close to him, stated your intentions, that's your desire to seek him and to know him and to hear from him, stop and listen. I don't know how you respond to any of this, any of these advice that you've heard. I will tell you my struggle. My struggle is at the point at times of placing myself in proximity. And that's very, very important for me to do this. For me, it is much easier to rush off and get to work doing all the things I know the Lord wants me to do in the day than it is to wait before the Lord because that takes discipline. To stop and listen before working hard is hard. I'd rather just get to work. And to keep me from rushing in to work, to work for the Lord, so that I force myself to listen first and wait before the Lord, so that I can seek his face continually, I've had to place signposts in my life to slow me down. You can think of them as spiritual speed limit signs or speed bumps if you like. I have prayers written in my prayer book that I pray frequently. These are some of them. O Lord, grant me to greet the coming day in peace. Help me in all things to rely upon your holy will. In every hour of this day, reveal your will to me. Bless my dealings with all who surround me. Teach me to treat all that comes to me throughout the day with peace of soul and with firm conviction that your will governs all. In all my deeds and words, guide my thoughts and feelings. In unforeseen events, let me not forget that all are sent by you. Teach me to act firmly and wisely without embittering or embarrassing others. Give me strength to bear the fatigue of the coming day with all that it shall bring. Direct my will, teach me to pray. That's one of the signposts that's in my prayer. Here's another one. This is another day, O Lord. I know not what it will bring forth, but make me ready, Lord, for whatever it may be. If I am to stand up, help me to stand bravely. If I am to sit still, help me to sit quietly. If I am to lie low, help me to do it patiently. If I am to do nothing, let me do it gallantly. Make these words more than words and give me the spirit of Jesus. I'll read you just one more. This is a prayer from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Oh God, oh God early in the morning I cry to you. Help me to pray and to concentrate my thoughts on you. I cannot do this alone. In me there is darkness, but with you there is light. I am lonely, but you do not leave me. I am feeble in heart, but with you there is help. I am restless, but with you there is peace. In me there is bitterness, but with you there is patience. I do not understand your ways 
but you know the way for me. Restore me to liberty. Enable me to live now that I may answer before you and before me. Lord, whatever this day may bring, your name be praised. I need signposts to call me to seek the Lord. I need discipline to call me to seek the Lord. I need intentional markers on the way to make sure I do this because this matters. This is important. If I don't seek the Lord, I'm adrift. I'm singing my own song off by myself, not helping anybody. If it's true of me, it's true of you. If we don't seek the Lord, how do we know we're following his direction? You know, there is an important place for corporate seeking, right? We seek the Lord when we gather on Sunday mornings. We seek the Lord in festivals on Ash Wednesday, Lent, Advent, spiritual renewal services, our prayer meeting services. Those are corporate times of seeking, and we want to seek the Lord corporately. It's important. But there's also personal times of seeking, private personal seeking, devotional time, meditation, worshiping privately the God of the universe. We're called to seek the Lord. We're designed to seek the Lord. I'm hoping this morning you will hear the call of the Holy Spirit to you saying, Seek the Lord. I know a very old song I'd like to invite you to sing with me and as many of you as know it, join me. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Alleluia, alleluia. Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Alleluia, alleluia. I encourage you, in these next few moments of silence, in the days that are ahead of us this week, that you would determine right now that you will seek the Lord that you will remove distractions, any distractions that keep you from doing that. That you will place yourself in proximity to him. That you will state your intention to seek him, to hear from him, to obey him when he speaks. And that you will be quiet long enough to hear all that he has to say. Would you observe a few moments of silence before I pray?
Gracious Father, we have been seeking you today and we are listening for your voice. We bless your name, we worship you, we acknowledge you as our Father. We ask your help in removing any distractions that might impair our communication. We ask you to draw us close to you and close to your presence. We ask you to hear the commitment of our heart, which is to seek you and to know you and to receive from you the grace that we need. And we ask now you would grant us the silent space to hear your voice. We are encouraged by the promise of your word that all who diligently seek you find you. And so we come to you with great confidence today, trusting that the one who draws us near, the one who has begun a good work in us, will carry it on to the day of completion. Our confidence is in you, Heavenly Father. Give us grace for each of our days. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. And now may the Lord bless you as you seek him. And may you seek the Lord with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength that you may live worthy of the high calling that you have received. To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.